HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Oh yeah, that's right. It's Monday. It's 12 o'clock and it's time for What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick. This is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, and I'm proud to be supported today by the Chef's Collaborative, of which I am a member. I just want you to know. Um, and uh, a very worthy organization it is. I really, I love what they do and I love how they're working with chefs who are, let's face it, the bellwethers in the food industry. I mean, they are the ones who set trends. They create tastes. Uh, they push the consumer to try different things, new things, and preferably more sustainable things. Um, so we love Chef's Collaborative. Okay, so here we start with uh, Joys and Sorrows. I don't know if you saw it today, but there was a fantastic article by Stephanie Strom, who's the food reporter for the uh, New York Times, that puts labeling into focus. She explains the differences between animal welfare approved, certified humane, and the Animal Humane Association. Just in case you didn't know, the best of the three is the Animal well- Welfare fair approved label. And the Animal Humane Association is the one that essentially reflects industry interests. Um, so they are the, shall we say, uh, least stringent. Um, the article barely mentions the Global Animal Partnership, uh, or GAP, which is another uh, certification labeling entity. It was developed by Whole Foods, I think, and it has the most rigorous standards of all. Um, but uh, it was really nice to see all of those different labels spelled out with the requirements for achieving them so that you know whether or not they are using... Uh, um, you know, less than completely humane methods for things like cutting tails off or trimming beaks, which is all part of industry standard practice. So um, that was really interesting. In other news, I saw that camel meat is making its way onto menus. It is a delicacy in some countries, particularly sub-Saharan. We will see if it gets past the ew factor here in the United States. But I, I wouldn't mind trying some camel meat. It might be really good. 
Uh, next up, The Guardian, uh, my favorite paper right now, uh, reports that the government has hired our, you know, our the British government, excuse me, the British government has hired a well-known advertising firm, Saatchi, uh, to help counter their far-right propaganda problem. They're seeing a spike in right-wing hate crimes, and especially in the younger demographics, so they are doing something about it. In contrast... The Trump administration, and this was reported by Reuters, would rename the multi-agency, quote, countering violent violent extremism task force. They're going to rename it countering Islamic extremism or countering radical Islamic extremism and eliminate the initiatives that are aimed at other violent hate groups in the United States. Go Trump. That's just what we need because we've had so many of those refugees pull out their Kalashnikovs and mow down a row of, you know, customs inspectors or whatever. Just unbelievable. Okay. Good news, though. This is really good news for all of you glutophiles or glutophobes. Cauli rice, that is cauliflower that has been processed into a rice-like form, has now been turned into a new British brand called Collie Rice, and it is a preservative-free, shelf-stable replacement for rice and pasta. Now, I don't know if you've ever made Collie Rice, but it is really, truly a process. <laughs> so I, for one, would be glad to try Collie Rice. I can't wait till it comes to a supermarket near me. In other good news, uh, the animal welfare measures implemented by the Purdue company over the last year are showing improved chickens. They exercise more, which would translate into less pecking and cannibalism, which are rife in um, deeply concentrated chicken houses. And they are generally healthier. The measures that the Purdue company have adopted include a no antibiotics rule, more space per chicken, more natural light, and more stuff to keep the chickens occupied and engaging in natural behaviors, which, by the way, is one of the five freedoms that were codified, oh, I don't know, decades ago, uh, which have been more or less ignored by most industrial um, animal uh, agricultural entities. Anyway, Purdue is only the only one of the four major chicken suppliers who have taken these steps. So if you're going to buy commercial chicken, uh, look for Purdue labels and let's say a big thank you to them because uh, the other companies like Tyson, most notably, should be following suit, but they're not. So even though they've made strides in terms of the antibiotics. I don't think that they're doing much in terms of cage enrichment or eliminating cages and so forth. So I I say a big thank you to Purdue today. In other animal welfare news, uh, the USDA has abruptly removed animal welfare reports from its website, citing quote-unquote privacy concerns. This was reported by the Associated Press. These reports apply to puppy mills, uh, labs where there's a lot of animal testing going on, zoos and horse breeding. The action was taken a couple of days after a congressman introduced a bill seeking greater transparency transparency in animal testing. So I don't think it's too much of a coincidence that this bill that this uh, information was suddenly yanked from the USDA website. But I took a look at the website because I like to be responsible, and it appears that they are retooling the regulations, uh, no doubt in favor of whatever the industry wants them to, but nevertheless, they are seeking public input on some of them. So I urge those of you who uh, are motivated to do things like this, check it out, go to the USDA website and check out these um, these uh, regulations that are under uh, discussion right now and weigh in because um, they do actually read those comments. 
I should add that you can use the USDA website, and I have, uh, to identify processing plants that do not comply with animal welfare standards. And that information is still intact. So if you find it as much fun as I do to peruse tables on how well slaughterhouses perform, then you too can join the official Meathead Club, of which I am now president, CEO, and only member. So join me. Um, That's it for Joys and Sorrows. We're going to (laughs) be... Thanks, Dave. We're going to come right back with Andrew Dahl. Uh, Andrew is um, the principal consultant and managing director. Oh, sorry. He is the prince president and chief executive officer of Zevo Bioscience. We're going to talk about algae today. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back after this sponsor drop. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. That's right. We love Chefs Collaborative. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are going to be speaking with Andrew Dahl. Mr. Dahl was formerly the Principal Consultant and Managing Director of Great Northern and Reserve Partners, LLC, a marketing strategy and business planning consultancy focused on biomed and biotech sectors uh, since uh, 2005. And for the previous 20 years, Mr. Dahl served as president of Dauber and Company, Inc., one of the largest independent marketing and consulting firms in the Midwest, with an extensive Fortune 500 client roster that included GM, Ford, Northwest, Xerox, AT&T, and Computerware. And now he is inexplicably the president and chief executive officer of Zevo Bioscience, a company that is developing a proprietary microalgae blend that may save the world. Welcome to the program, Andrew. How are you? Well, thank you for inviting me, Katie. (laughs) My pleasure. Um, Okay, so now you have to explain after I read that... (laughs) That bio of yours, um, where you were working for GM, Ford, Northwest, and Xerox, how you came to be involved with biomedical products like uh, microalgae? Well, you know, after spending a few, uh, more than a few years in in corporate America, I I just felt like I wanted to get out into the startup uh, field and, you know, take some of the discipline and, and experience that I uh, had gathered in in, uh, in the Fortune 500 world and apply it to small startups and biotechs that were typically you know run by entrepreneurs and, and scientists. So it, it's actually been quite a ride. It's been quite fun. I can imagine. I mean, that's quite that has to be a learning curve for you because I mean those are not 
certainly not uh, the same kind of requirements or, you know, how things are marketed, how things are developed has to be very different from what you were working with in the past, right? So exactly. Tell us nights, a little... Nights and weekends. It's <laughs> a shock to the system. Um, so tell us about your product. What is it? How is it produced? And how is it processed? Well, basically, it's an optimized native freshwater uh, filamentous algae that's actually never been previously cultivated or consumed by humans and animals, never really been studied all that much. Mm. But it can be grown in ponds, photobioreactors, tubes, and really the very simply, and the, and the only processing is really flash pasteurizing and then drying it to render a fine powder or a flake. Uh-huh. That's it. It's very minimal. Very minimal. And now, and you process that uh, part of it is used as a supplement for humans, a dietary supplement, right? And you yeah. make the following claims on your website. I'm just going to give you a hard time about supplements because I think the supplement industry is largely bunkum. But anyway, um, you will you will prove me wrong. I hope uh, sustainable, non-GMO, antibiotic-free, non-animal protein source with optimal. An amino acid profile. You claim it supports optimal skeletal muscular health during aging, exertion, and strenuous exercise. That would be for me. Uh, supports a healthy immune response and a healthy metabolic function. So, how does it how does it accomplish those miracles? And um, how do you back up those claims? Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. The the supplement industry actually, you know, if you follow the existing regulations and really adhere to ethical product standards, which by the way are costly and complex, you know, the claims, you know, can be fully validated. I mean, we've conducted dozens of in vitro, ex vivo, in vivo studies at top-tier universities, well-regarded contract research organizations around the country with statistically significant results, especially in terms of healthy immune response and skeletal muscular inflammatory response. I mean, you can do it by the book. And you can then substantiate those claims. Unfortunately, not everybody goes to that level of diligence when, when they're developing their products. I would agree. <laughs> I mean, the supplement industry is basically <clears throat> totally unregulated, uh, thanks to Orrin Hatch, um, the uh, governor, who, or rather the senator, who has uh, maintained a very close tie with the supplement industry, being as how most of it is produced in his home state of Utah, right? So <clears throat> where are you, by the way? We're, we're in Michigan, and mm -hmm. we have uh, cultivation facilities in Arizona and Southern California. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I'm just curious, I don't want to dwell too much time on this because I'm much more interested in the bigger picture of livestock feed and so forth, but <clears throat> when you guys say it supports optimal skeletomuscular health or supports a healthy immune response or metabolic function, right. how do you measure that? How do you, I mean, I know you said ex vivo, in vivo, Liberty right. but let's let's hear a concrete example of what 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 goes into testing for that and how you measure it. Well, uh, typically you be, you um, I don't know how much time you want to spend on, but basically you start with uh, in vitro experimentations in a lab um, where you uh, take you know existing standards uh, for inflammatory response or for um, uh, glyco um, uh, protection of cartilage. And those things are done at, you know, at, at test tube, petri dish level. Mm -hmm. From there, you go to animal models where, you know, you, um, uh, you give animals um, uh, a little bit of the biomass and then see how they react to it. 
mm-hmm. uh, from, and then at the same time, you make sure that the you know welfare of the animal, make sure that it's um, uh, that there's no adverse side effects. You draw blood samples. You you look to see if there's any mutagenic effects. You back that up to see if there's uh, you know what kind of uh, RNA activity exists. You know, in other mm-hmm. words, what what are you what kind of cytokines and chemokines are you producing? Are those statistically relevant? And then you challenge it against things like glucosamine chondroitin, which um, you know sort of works. Um, or you do it against some other known standard. Mm-hmm. So th- there is, you know, if you do it the right way, you can scientifically defend. I mean, we have thousands of pages of reports. So you can actually do it by the book and do it with the necessary scientific rigor. Well, yeah. <clears throat> One if would you hope that you would. To. If well... you choose to. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're saying that you have chosen to. And therefore, yes. your claims can be substantiated by third-party peer-reviewed research. Is that that's what you're exactly saying? Exactly right. Okay, that's As a matter what... of fact. There's even a couple of published scientific articles on our stuff. Very excellent, Andrew. In, I like to hear that. Fills in me with peer-reviewed confidence. journals. Okay, that fills me with confidence. So how? Uh, okay, given that people have been consuming spirulina and other algae compounds for mm-hmm. quite a while now, what what makes yours different? Um, well, that's a that's a really good question. From a from a nutritional perspective, the total protein is comparable with some of these other commercially cultivated strains. But where ours differs is the actual amino acid profile is a little bit better. We have a considerable amount of healthy fiber, which does not exist in spirulina, huh? as well as well as an abundance of vitamin A, vitamin C. I mean, a hundred grams of our stuff has more vitamin A than three, four ounces of beef liver and more vitamin C than a medium orange. Mm. And that's really significant because that vit- these are not synthetic vitamins. These are vitamins right. that are being created by the algae. So they're, in our humble opinion, they're a little bit more bioavailable. Yes, I would but agree the, with but, that. Just from but what the I've reality seen. is that the real practical advantage is in production. Mm. You've got to be able to grow it. Ours grows quickly. It's robust. It grows continuously. It's easy to harvest. So from a practical matter, what we were looking at is, you know, that's great. You can grow some algae in a test tube, but if you can't grow it on a farm, if you can't really treat it as a crop, you know, it's kind of like, well, okay, but <laughs> yeah, no, right. nobody's going to use it, you know, well, because uh- it's... Yeah. Too expensive to produce. Okay, well, thank you for saying that because that kind of leads me right into the next thing. So you're, at the moment, is your company primarily consumer-facing with the supplement industry or are you also working, uh, you know, sort of 50-50 with the livestock industry and that's, we're going to launch into sort of like how it's grown and, and what you grow it in and all that stuff. So so sure, first, sure. let's let's move away from the supplement thing, but is it are you primarily sup- consumer-faced right now or are you... Dividing your well, resources. Well, you know, once again, being you know, you have to be very practical about how you do this. Current regulations, if you follow them as we're supposed to, yeah. require that we meet human safety standards first, because based on the notion that any animal products have to be safe for human consumption, right? right? And then at the same time, you have to consider the welfare and safety of the animal. So what happens is. We're actually needing to do both in parallel, and at the very end, 
we end up with both human and production animal or livestock uh, applications sort of occur at roughly the same time. I see. Interesting. So yeah, it's, you know, it's just how it works out from, a, from the regulatory environment. That totally makes sense to me. So tell me about how you grow your algae and what do you grow your algae? Because I've read that it can grow in brackish, salt, or wastewater. Um, what right. do you guys use, and, and does that make a difference in terms of the end product vis-a-vis nutrition or flavor or any of the other criteria? Right, <clears throat> right. Um, it, our product is grown basically in fresh water. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, we, we add some nutritional things to it like nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and phosphate, which have to be food grade, by the way. Well, those are and, those are fertilizers that we use already on our fields uh, to grow corn and soy. So it's, uh, you're basically talking about fertilizers. Right, but uh, the, the fertilizer that's used, uh, used for uh, corn and um, uh, you know, soy production or plant production like that mm-hmm. um, doesn't have to be as pure because the animal itself or the plant itself actually filters the, the, pro, the, the, uh, the um, fertilizers where in our case, the, the algae is actually in its growing environment. So you have to use a, a, a slightly uh, better grade of, 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 of uh, nitrogen and phosphate, mm-hmm. what's called food grade, right. used for food processing. Yeah, I'm not saying they're but bad. I'm just pointing out that it's the same you know, it's the same product, although yours is obviously better than what they use on fields. Yeah, it's, it's a better, yeah, it's a better, better, cleaner grade. And can you um, recycle that water? In other words, can you just like use that same water, harvest the algae, and then put more of the fertilizer that in? That is and- a that is an absolutely great question. For this <laughs> reason, even though it's grown in water, and this is people don't realize this, um, actually, uh, we use less water by far, than growing a standard crop where you spray, you know, water, you irrigate water on a large field, most of which evaporates when you're spraying it or hits the ground. It doesn't get consumed by the plant. So really, when we start doing what we call our technical economic analyses, we're using maybe 10 to 20 percent of the water that's used for land crops. Mm. We use only about 15 percent of the land for the equivalent amount of protein. Wow. And we probably use maybe 10 to 20% of the fossil fuel that's used for an equivalent amount of protein. So it's it's really quite efficient in that regard. It sounds like it. So um, because I am so livestock focused in this program, um, and also in my own personal life, that's that's I follow that industry very carefully. Um, do you see your product uh, as being able to take the pressure off of uh, feed crops like corn and soy in the future? Because you said it's like just a powder or a flake. So I'm sort of like struggling with how that's going to end up providing enough food for cattle, for instance. Like how, right, right. what will you add that to, in other words, exactly. to take the pressure off of other crops? Right. And, and you, make, you make an excellent point, and I'm going to try to give you two different answers for it. Okay. <laughs> the first is that initially microalgae, macroalgae are going to be, because, just because the production base isn't there, is going to be deployed as a feed additive. And the feed additive promotes feed efficiency and digestibility of what they're already using so you, you can use less of it. You're able to do, at least in our case, antibiotic-free growth promotion or hormone-free growth promotion 
by creating a better nutritional um, and, uh, profile for the feed with the additives, and you get a better immune response as a result as well. Excellent. What you have to realize is that initially, microalgae, macroalgae is only going to be 1% to 2% of the feed, of the entire you know, uh, uh, feed dose. Mm-hmm. And then as production volume grows over time, that percentage will increase as costs begin to drop. So, so initially you have to you have to pick your your what I'll call low volume, high value applications, and then as people uh, start to um, uh, use it more and more, you're going to see uh, producers start jumping in. It, it's just like rapeseed production or soybean. There was a time 40, 50 years ago where nobody grew soy in the United States. Mm. And over time, you know, guys went, hey, you know, I can make a buck growing soy as opposed to growing whatever, alfalfa, rhubarb. So, you know, you move into it. And that's, ex- that's how I think the algae um, is going to happen. And a really important point I should, I should make, did you know that there are only three states in the United States that classify algae as a crop? No. That's... That's key. What does that mean? Yeah, right. What does that mean? Well, if it's not a crop, that means you can't get a Farm Bureau loan. That means you can't get, Uh. uh, you know, tax, uh, the the kind of tax break, that property tax break that you would get if you're growing corn, Uh which is a crop. So there's a lot of governmental infrastructure. There's also a lot of private industry infrastructure. infrastructure that hasn't been brought to bear yet on algae production mm-hmm. because it's not considered a crop. Mm. So, so when I go to Congress... Going to these state legislatures and saying, hey, why why can't we grow this as a crop? Mm-hmm. Was... Know, the growing marijuana is a crop, you'd think they'd they do algae. You'd think they'd do hemp, too, which is like the wonder fiber, you know, including exactly. for cattle feed. I mean, you know, especially in Kentucky, where they could replace the coal industry with hemp, but Mr. McConnell doesn't seem to want to go that way. Um, in fact, right. I'm going to Washington tomorrow, and I'm spending a week there taking care of a relative. But um, but one of the things I like to do when I go to D.C. is is lobby. I actually go to, you know, the halls of power and uh, drop into people's offices and say, what about this? What about that? Why aren't you doing such and such? <laughs> I, I, should, I should send you a few bags of this stuff. You should be doing they this yourself. Andrew, you should be doing this. This is how you get shit done, because otherwise these guys only listen to the people who are paying them, because basically the entirety of Congress, House and Senate, is bought and paid for by industry in this country, as I am sure True. you know already yourself. Um, True. Let's talk for a second. I read an article, as I, you know, as I like to do my homework before I do these interviews, so there was a 2016 article in Drovers, which is one of my favorite trade publications. Do you read those trade publications for the livestock industry, by the way, because they really are valuable to you, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, so and, meat and poultry, and, drovers, global global meat news, all of that stuff. Really great. So, egg funder. <laughs> and then there's one that I can't afford, but it's also really good called Feedstuffs. That's really the Mac Daddy of them, in my opinion, but it's very, very expensive. Um, 
Anyway, but it was reported in Drovers that a new study on the benefits of algae production, quote, details how the cultivation of algae for feed could free up millions of acres currently used to produce pasture and feed crops, reducing the tension that exists between food security and bioenergy crops. So that leads us to the main question, which is, can algae also function as a component in bioenergy products like ethanol? I wasn't clear from that statement, and I'm hoping you'll be able to explain. Um. My my thoughts on on bioenergy from algae is it's not efficient. Uh And I I don't know if it will ever become efficient. It is absolutely true that you can cultivate more protein per acre with algae than you can with a a standard food crop, Uh right? Without a doubt. But the capital cost for that acre is going to be higher than it is for a pasture or feed crop. Right. So there's there, so the initial capital expense, yes. It, once you get past that point, it is much more efficient. Now, in terms of using algae to create bioenergy products, we'd have to get into this whole discussion of what I call the negative energy gradient, which is if you're putting more energy into your biofuel, then the biofuel has energy to give you once you're done. Right. You're wasting your time. Yes. <laughs> Thank That's you. That's kind of where I think the and, – and, and the problem is that the government sort of distorts um, the market in, in a way because they provide a lot of funding for algae for bioenergy use, which I don't think is necessarily very practical, and very little – for algae as a nutraceutical, as mm-hmm. a pharmaceutical, um, or a food crop, or anything like that. There's very little money available for it's what I consider to be more practical uses. How do you think that can be changed? I mean, that, that does, I mean, you make a great well, point there. Well, you said there. the it's magic like... word, lobbying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I have to tell you, academia and uh, a lot of these uh, research organizations the money's coming in from, from the government or from corporate America. They're not going to turn it down. Mm-hmm. But the problem then is the focus of all these scientific resources is towards this biofuel idea, which may or may not work, as opposed to, hey, in 2040, we're going to have a very real 20% shortfall in protein production for 8 billion people, what are we doing about it? Mm. That's, to, you know, so we're looking at, at $18 a gallon biodiesel fuel and billions of dollars are going into that. Mm. When, when is everybody in the world going to eat 20% less protein in, in 20 years? I don't think so. Probably not. I mean, and I just wrote a book about this. And and given the the expanding rate of meat consumption in uh, developing countries, you know, absolutely not. And and by the way, it's going to be really hard to tell those people who are just getting on the meat train that they can't have any meat. They have to eat algae now. (laughs) Your algae. Let's let's hope they get the algae. Yeah. Right. I'll give you an example. Just beef. You know, the protein demand right now is 66 million metric tons a year. Yeah. By in, in 20 years, 
it's going to be 107 million metric tons, 62% change. Wait, we have a 20% shortfall in just the, the feed that's required to feed those cows so that we can eat them. Right. How is this going to work? Well, this is why I loved your product when I got that press release, because I don't normally do like, you know, programs with <laughs> that tout a product. But I mean, this in terms of livestock feed, I just thought, wow, this really would be a game changer for mm-hmm. um, production. So um, we didn't get a chance to talk about the cost comparison. So you're saying you said earlier in the program that as a you, you can't completely replace your corn or soy feed with microalgae. That's not going to happen. But as a supplement, it would allow animals to consume less of those crops. Can you give us like a sense yes. of what that would cost? If you were a farmer and you wanted to start, you know, introducing microalgae and reduce pullback on how much fodder, you know, actual, you know, crunchy materials you right. gave your animals, what, what would the cost savings be? Have you been able to run an analysis of that? Yeah, well, there's actual targets that that we have to meet. So you're you're you have to meet, for an example, uh, on a cow, mm-hmm. uh, you have to be within eight to twelve cents a day, in terms of the cost of your algae to offset the 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 uh, the cost of the feed that's being um, being replaced or that's being optimized. So you're you're down in the the, the pennies per ounce mm-hmm. on it to, to for it to make sense uh, mm-hmm. from from a uh, you know from a technical economic uh, modeling uh, standpoint and uh, we're, you know we're getting there we're at the point where from a feed additive perspective supplementation perspective um, it makes sense but also you have to realize something a a pound of biomass of you know some of these algae render other things besides just the protein or just the the uh, polysaccharides that are used to um, spur uh, digestibility. Uh, there's pigments that can be pulled out. There are uh, peptides that can be pulled out that are that are uh, uh, can be concentrated and sold as a different product. That then brings the cost of the the biomass itself down. Mm-hmm. For, for feeding animals, so it's really not not necessarily a a single uh, revenue proposition. There, the, the, the stuff is fairly flexible, and you can extract different products from it without affecting the nutritional profile. Oh, interesting. Which, is, which I find interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the report that um, I read a report also called Carbon Balance and Management, mm-hmm. and um, the, the authors suggest that animals, depending on the species, can be fed up to 40% of microalgae without affecting their flavor. So I'm wondering, like, what has the response been from the livestock industry to the idea of replacing or adding microalgae to their traditional fodder are they do you find like a lot of interest from major livestock production facilities like the cargills the smithfields of the world are they like pumping money into your company to like say yeah hurry up we want this there there is a quite a bit of of interest matter of fact we were uh we were approached by uh a company that formulates um um, the feed for Mm -hmm pork and poultry producers on a custom basis to optimize. And we're entering into uh, a field study with them in three weeks mm. uh, 
to test our our uh, product as a feed additive for broilers to see, you know, if they can dial back on the medicated feed, mm-hmm. that they can dial back on certain high-dollar components that are in the feed. So because our stuff makes the feed more digestible, makes the animals healthier. Mm-hmm. But once again, it it's you have to have a cost-benefit ratio that makes sense to the producer, otherwise they don't adopt it. So us, once again, displacing corn or soy as the basic feedstock is going to be a while. Mm-hmm. It will, it, you, you know, production will have to ramp up over years. Let's just hope we didn't start too late. Mm-hmm. Everybody doesn't end up, uh, you know, experiencing a protein shortage 20 years from now. Well, I'm not so worried about that, but um, I'm much more worried about the loss of uh, cropland to growing corn and soy uh, in favor of animal production as opposed to cropland that is being used to grow fruits and vegetables and other products um, that are equally important to sustaining life, if not more so. So I think that's I think that's the that's the the, the big uh, you know issue here is like are you guys going to be able to ramp up fast enough and be accepted more quickly enough into an industry that is typically quite slow to respond to change um, and, you know, take the pressure off of arable land that is now currently being uh, gobbled up by meat companies, which is what's happening. I mean, we have around the world, we have uh, companies that go in and buy or lease land for long-term periods. They may or may not grow crops on it at the moment, but they are gambling on the fact that arable land is going to become increasingly scarce as our population grows. And so that displaces, you know, indigenous people who then have trouble growing enough food for their own communities. And that, to me, is the biggest um, problem with uh, trying to feed the livestock population that we currently have, much less the one that's going to become um that's going to be growing up uh, in the in the wake of the of the increased demand for meat so no i i agree yeah it's going to be a problem so how how committed is your company to the goal of of actually uh becoming a major player in the livestock feed industry is that something that you guys are really uh game to do or is that just you know coming along with your supplement industry thing well, no. I mean, we 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 made a, a really a dedicated push, especially with uh, dairy cows mm-hmm. um, uh, and poultry, to no to to be at least initially health promoter, feed efficiency promoter, animal welfare promoter within within the production community. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, from everything that we've experienced to date. Uh, Everybody's looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I, we don't see any pushback or or anything like that. I think that everybody, you know, in the food industry has looked at these FAO reports and looked at some of the yeah. uh, trend lines for uh, protein production and and you know the the availability of arable land for uh, plant production or uh, crop production. And uh, I think uh, I think you'd be pleasantly surprised at. Um, the, the interest that there is in the feed industry, specifically, and as well as in uh, you know the, the human uh, food industry for for plant based proteins, mm-hmm. I I really have not encountered any resistance. In fact, I've seen enthusiastic support provided to us even from just initial conversations. Well, wow, that's great. 
So no, I'm I'm very heartened by it. Well, I, I bet you are because you're the CEO. So yeah, you kind of need to. <laughs> Yeah, it better be, I guess. Yeah. It better be working for you, Andrew, or you'll be out of yeah. a job. Um, you know, That's we have true. not said well, what let the me name. Take my pom poms out then. And... <laughs> we have not said. We have not revealed the name of this miracle product. By the way, do you realize that? I mean, we said the name of your company, Zevo Bo- uh, Bioscience, but what is the name what? of your product? Uh, the name of our product, it, what we're referring to it as the Zevo strain or Calgae, K-A-L-G-A-E. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's obviously a proprietary algae strain with a really long technical number that I won't bother to try to repeat twice. Right. Uh, but <laughs> we you. will be marketing it as Calgae, K-A-L-G-A-E. And the, cal, the, cals, the K part stands for what, K calories or calorie content or something no, like that? that? Actually, no, it actually stands for the genus of the species that ah. we've been working with for, for the past five years. And to go back to the very beginning of this conversation, how did you guys decide sure. that this was the algae that was going to be the magic bullet? That, you know, that's an, interesting, uh, that's an interesting story. We actually inherited this from a previous company that um, the, the shareholders had invited my management team to come in and take over. So it was already discovered. It was already there. It was just kind of dormant. So we, start, we picked it up and started, you know, doing our studies and validation work and said, wow, this is, there's really something here. Cool. So we can't take credit for discovering the strain, actually. I see. Okay, but you can take credit for developing it and doing the due diligence. Right. Um, and, 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 and doing all of the, what we call classical optimization to I make see. sure that it grows well and right. robust and healthy. So basically you guys put the stuff, you put the strains, you put the babies. I mean, I'm not quite sure how algae propagates, but you put the stuff in a, in a body of water, you load it up with nitrate and phosphorus, and you just let it rip. How long does it take to, to grow out? Well, it, it, the, the way we do it, actually, is uh, we have um, uh, very, very tightly controlled um, uh, what, what, what's referred to as seed stock or inoculum. Mm-hmm. And these are maintained at several laboratories across the U.S. Um, so we will grow... Uh, this in flasks and test tubes and, and little tiny reactors for a number of weeks. Then it's placed into uh, a small pond, and within four or five days, it will cover the top of the pond. Uh-huh. It's skimmed off. It's put into a larger pond. So it's like sourdough starter, yeah. I guess. Once you put it in the pond, this particular algae does not bloom and die. It grows continuously, so as long as you're harvesting enough to where the algae thinks it needs to catch up, it will stay in this continuous logarithmic growth cycle. So it's really efficient, and we can harvest as much as once a week. Wow. 40 weeks a year, so you're getting some... This is the point kind of to our particular algae and our particular cultivation model. We're har- we can harvest almost every week for about 40 weeks a year. Uh-huh. So you build up quite a bit of, of uh, biomass at that point. And, and so I'm trying to get a sense of the scale. So like one pound of inoculum yields how many pounds oh, of biomass? Thousands in a, of pounds. In a week? 
No, no. Oh, in a week. Yeah. Uh, oh, I see what you're getting at. The growth rates. Kind of, yeah. Um, so the growth <laughs> rates on a, on a, let's call it a half-acre pond, mm-hmm. you can harvest, uh, you know, if everything's running right, about 200 pounds a week Wow. out of, out of that. As a matter of fact, you know, we have yield numbers that we, we've published, but it's, it's fairly substantial. To give you some idea, we can harvest in the course of a year five times as much uh, biomass as you would for a comparable area of soy. Okay, great. That's exactly the kind of comparison I was looking for. Yes. Yeah. In, wow. In the same footprint, yeah. Right. Wow. So a half acre of pond... Uh, yields five times the amount of product as a half acre of land. Of soy, yeah. Yeah, wow. Of soy. Amazing. Okay, well, um, I think I've run out of questions here. I can't think of anything else. Is there anything else you want to tell me about this fabulous... Do you use the product yourself? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah? So um, tell me, how do you feel? Well, uh, quite well, actually. (laughs) I have to tell you. You do have to say that, um, you know. <laughs> Are you going to send me a sample? Do I need to invest in your stock? <laughs> no, no. As a matter of fact, I will send you a sample. Please and I do. I think that what you should do is do what I do, is you mix it into any one of these low-protein vegan drinks that I drink. Ew, okay. That only have maybe two or three grams of protein and, and sometimes not much in the way of fiber. And uh, um, and you'll see that we, I'll just give you an example. There's a, a, some there's a market leader out there, vegan, you know, power drink. Yeah, has three grams of protein, zero dietary fiber. Yeah, you can stir our stuff right in there and get 18 grams of protein, six grams of of dietary fiber. Get 60 percent of your vitamin A for the day. Get 40% of your vitamin C for the day by stirring in a couple teaspoons of this. Well, can I just drink it in a glass of water? I mean, I have a really balanced you diet. You could. Yeah, it probably doesn't taste that great. I don't. I, I, I try not to drink those pre-made shakes of any type. Are you vegan? Is that why you started doing this? No, but I have to tell you, there are a lot of advantages to, you know, to do vegan only for two, three days a week. I don't know if anybody yes. out there... Well, considers that, but I don't think it's an altogether bad idea. Oh, I think it's an excellent idea. I mean, I have a pretty much plant-based diet anyway. I mean, I love meat, but I don't eat it every day by any means, right. maybe once a week. Um, anyway, well, Andrew, thank you so much for this. I'm looking forward to my sample. And uh, is, is this a stock that we should invest in, by the way? Are you are you traded publicly yet? Uh, yes, we, we are. The, the ticker symbol is the same as the name of the company, mm-hmm. Z-I-V-O. Mm-hmm. I'm going to check it out. Um, Absolutely. Please visit our website at uh, zevobioscience.com. There's plenty of interesting information, I think, that people gather. There's a white paper. There's several other things that, you know, I think more coherently explain what I'm trying to do. I thought you did a great job of explaining what you're doing. And I think this sounds like an amazing product. If it scales up and the livestock industry adopts it and you don't get squashed by the big lobbies uh, like the Corn Growers Association. (laughs) 
<laughs> then I, I see a bright future for you. Um, I do advocate okay. going down to Congress and like lobbying your locals because uh, really they do actually come out and talk to you sometimes. Um, really? But it, yes. That's encouraging. That's I've done this a couple of times now. They don't. They may not always love what you have to say, and sometimes they will True. turn on their heel and walk back into their office and close the door, which has also happened to me. <laughs> but <laughs> but the fact is, is that they are interested, and um, you know, as you know, in the current climate, uh, they're being inundated by calls and emails and phone and and letters and so on. Um, so I think they're probably particularly receptive at this moment, just because the people are speaking. And if they want to get reelected, they need to start paying attention. So um, join your voice, you know, join your voice and start promoting your product and uh, and make them start thinking about better ways of producing meat, because this is something that, uh, you know, anybody who's in a, an agricultural state is is really quite sort of, you know, um, boxed in by their lobbyists, by the meat lobbyists uh, who support their campaigns for reelection. And so they need to hear from other voices. And yours would be obviously yeah. a good one. Anyway, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a very interesting. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I, I really, really look it. forward to hearing more about it. Please keep in touch with me and let me know what's going on. And uh, thanks very much to my sponsor, Chefs Collaborative. Um, I urge anybody who isn't familiar with them to check out what they're doing and, if possible, join them. It's a great organization. There's a lot to be learned from them. Uh, and thanks to my engineer. And we'll see you next week with another great episode. Thanks for listening, folks. So long now. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.